Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to Worship at Grace. I want to begin today with a portion of the classic Christmas story as found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged uh, to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, the traditional Christmas story, as we read it in Scripture, always amazes me. What I mean is the, the people and the places and the circumstances God used are so unlikely. I mean, would you agree? If, if you were God, <laughs> would you have done it the way God did it? Not me. I mean, I got to tell you, there's no way I would have Messiah born in a podunk village like Bethlehem and grow up in a redneck town like Nazareth. I mean, there is no way. I would have picked Rome, a more sophisticated place, the largest city in the world at that time. And would you have chosen this lowly virgin Mary, this teenager? Not me. I mean, I, I probably would have picked the daughter of some famous Roman senator so that Messiah could be born into power and privilege. And would you have made the first public announcement of his birth to shepherds? Not a chance about that. I mean, these were the rednecks of the day. <laughs> there were the, these were the ones that people made jokes about. They were the scum of the earth. Me? I would have done a massive marketing campaign and pulled in the, 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 the finest consultants I could so that I could be sure that Messiah's birth was heard by every citizen of the Roman Empire and beyond. But listen, God's not me. Thank God. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And he did it the way he did it for a purpose. And so that's what I want to talk with you about for these minutes together today. We're in a series called We've Never Needed Christmas More Than Now. And today, I want to talk with you about an appreciation for the humility of God shown in the incarnation. Now, if, if you come to church around Christmas time, you probably hear that word kicked around, right? Incarnation. It's, it's one of those $50 words. It's one of those stained glass theological words, but the question is, what does it mean? It's a word, very important, the idea that God revealed himself in humanity, and that is profoundly important. 
We sing about it at Christmas. Charles Wesley's famous lines, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This is describing the incarnation. And to me, of all the unlikely aspects of the Christmas story, and there are many, perhaps the most mystifying of all is the incarnation itself. This whole idea that God would humble himself and become like one of us, oh, that should just fill our souls with wonder and appreciation. So today, here's where I want to go. I want to explore with you some of the possible reasons that God did it the way he did. So here's something we all need to embrace about God. Nothing, get this now, nothing is random about God. He makes known the end from the beginning. He does not change in his character, in his purposes. He is unchanging. He's immutable. And so nothing is random. So God had a reason. He had reasons for doing it the way he did it. And I want us to explore those together. And as we do, I hope it'll just hopefully fill our hearts with this profound appreciation for his humility. One reason I would suggest in getting us started here that God did it the way he did is that God wanted to show how much he cares, how much he loves people. If you're just trying to window shop Christianity, this is one of those ideas I would not want you to miss because if you miss this, you've missed really the heart of this gospel message. Christmas is about a rescue mission. God had this rescue in mind when the incarnation happened. Jesus, in other words, came for a very specific purpose. That's stated in a lot of ways in the Bible. John 3.16 puts it like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or consider Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says, for the Son of Man, that's we're talking about Jesus, came to seek and to save what was lost. So those statements and many others like them we could look at, they're like mission statements directly from the lips of Jesus. Now you go, now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Couldn't God have done it differently? Why couldn't, why couldn't God, if he wanted to say, I care, why couldn't he have just said that from a distance? Why did it have to be up close and, and personal? If you've read much in philosophy, you've probably read a little bit by Soren Kierkegaard, the very famous philosopher. Well, Kierkegaard has this parable about a king who wanted to get married, but Unlike the tradition in his day, he wanted to marry for love. Now, the tradition said you married because of pedigree. You, you married because of political alliances and so forth. But he had no interest in that. He wanted to marry for love. And one day, he saw a humble peasant woman dressed very 
uh, poorly, virtually in rags, and she had none of the things that his cabinet members insisted that he looked for in a wife. She had no education, no pedigree, no, no connections, no accomplishments. She had no royal family connections. She literally, believe it or not, lived in the city dump and kind of eked out a living searching through the dump and, and digging through the dirt. But strange as it seems that who knows all the reasons, the king fell in love with her. But how could he get her to consider being his queen? His advisors first suggested that he just force the issue and make it happen. And sure enough, he had the power to make people grovel at his feet. But in his mind, that was out of the question. <laughs> he didn't want a marriage based on force or fear. He'd fallen in love with her over time unlikely as it was, and he wanted that love to be voluntarily returned. Well, again, his advisors were beside themselves. They were aghast that he would have an interest in such a woman. He, they advised him to just forget about her altogether and finally find someone who was worthy of his affection. But she was the love of his life. He was virtually obsessed with her. He thought about her, and he wanted that love to be returned. And he thought, well, maybe I'll just shower her with gifts. Give her everything she could have ever wanted, ever dream of. But, but then he thought, no, I, if I did that, how would I know if she loved me for me or just for all that I gave her? And finally, he made up his mind. He rose from his throne. He put aside his royal robe. He put on the clothes of a pauper. And he settled into the neighborhood where she lived, right there in the dump. And right along with her, dug through the dirt to seek for food. He had literally left the castle for a dump. Why? in order to woo her and show her how much he cared. Now, listen, Kierkegaard's parable is not a perfect analogy, but it is awfully close to what God did for us in Christ. Make no mistake, God could force us into a relationship, but here's what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that he calls that he works in your life, that by his spirit, he stirs up a longing in you and a desire for a relationship. And through many different ways, he shows you his kindness. But, but scripture also teaches that while he's doing all of that, you still need to choose him and that we are responsible for the choices that we make. But don't you find it amazing? That God went to all that trouble, to such extremes, to secure your salvation. He left the glories of heaven. He settled into our neighborhood. He lived a perfect life, and he showed the depths of his love by actually dying on a cross to pay the penalty that our sins demanded. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And he extends an invitation to a relationship by his grace. I don't know about you, but 
I mean, that's just amazing to me that God would do all of that for you and me. So what I'm declaring to you today is that God is not a distant deity. He made it personal, and he did it to show how much he cares for you. And as one hymn writer put it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Christmas is about God on a rescue mission coming to show his love, how much he cares. But I'm going to suggest a second reason today that, that I would ask you to consider. I believe it is one of the reasons that God did it the way he did. Again, he could have done it probably in all kinds of ways. His ways are not our ways. But here, here's one I want you to consider. God wanted to reveal how his power is made perfect in weakness. Think of that for a moment. Power made perfect in weakness. Now, that's what we call a paradox. And I, I hope we understand the Christian life and the Christian message is just chock full of paradoxes. There are all kinds of them. We need to get comfortable with them, really. There are theological paradoxes. God is sovereign, and he predestines certain things to happen. That is scripturally true. But it's also true that God says in scripture, we're responsible for the choices we make. Now, theologians look at that for centuries, and they go, that's an antinomy. That's a paradox. We can't resolve that logically, but both of those statements are true. That's a paradox. Or the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Theologians ponder that and they scratch their heads. That's irrational. How could that possibly be? It's called the hypostatic union of Christ. But we can't wrap our minds around paradoxes like that. So there are theological ones, but there are also a lot more practical ones. For instance, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Whoever wants to be first must become the servant of all. Give and it will be given to you and so forth. Tons of paradoxes. But here's a big one. This is huge. God's power is made perfect in weakness. So, so let me explain to you the practical outworkings of that. If you choose to take this book up and you choose to comb and scour through the pages of this book, here's what you're going to find. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. You're going to find that God seems to delight in taking the most unlikely people, the most unlikely places, the most unlikely circumstances to accomplish his will. Over, 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 over again, he blows our minds with the people, the places, and the situations he chooses. That's what you're going to find. Why? Why? The answer is because God's glory and power shows up best, best, when in our weakness we rely on him. So here's the deal. If, G if God had done it my way, if Jesus had been born to wealthy parents, people could have always pointed and said, yeah, there you go. That's what money can do. Money talks, always has, always will. That's the power of money right there. I'll tell you what. Or if God had done it my way, 
And Jesus had been born to famous Roman, uh, a famous Roman senator and his wife. People could have pointed and said, yeah, there you go. That's what political connections will do for you. I'll tell you, you got to have the right network, baby. Look at what power can accomplish. Or if Jesus had been born to Greek philosophers, people could have always pointed and said, yeah, that's it. We always knew it. Education's the key. Education's the key to everything. Look at that. That's what education can do. And all credit goes to the great Sophia, goddess of wisdom. I'm so glad God's ways are not my ways. God essentially came in the world through nobodies on the backside of nowhere. And the reason is so that no one could rob God of his glory. No one could claim credit except the one to whom all credit is due. Now, let, let, let's ditch the theory for a while. And let's get really, really personal. In fact, I'm going to ask you to get a little vulnerable here with me for just a moment. Do you ever feel inadequate? No, really, I, I, I want you to just think about this. Get, just get honest for a moment. I do. Do you ever feel unworthy? Do you ever feel like in your life, God has called you to something that is just so far beyond what any ordinary person like you can ever accomplish? Friends, I feel that feeling every day of my life. Every day of my life. I'm over my head every day. I'm overwhelmed. And if you feel that way, you're probably, probably in a pretty healthy place because again, God specializes in using ordinary people to accomplish or extraordinary things for his glory. Now, there's so many places in Scripture that really say this, but I, I want to draw your attention to just one, just one of those. It's where Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is talking about this very issue, and he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were, influ were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And notice this next phrase now. Why did he do it the way he did it? so that no one may boast before him. Interpretation, there's just not much of a place for hot shots in God's kingdom. If you're full of yourself, you're definitely not full of God. Now, this raises an interesting question that I have often pondered, and I want to get you in on the pondering here. It is an empirically verifiable fact. It is beyond question that if you look empirically and do your research well, for the last 2,000 years, the good news of the gospel has been embraced generally better by down-and-outers than by up-and-outers. You can prove that easily just by your research. I didn't say there were no up-and-outers. Oh, there, there have been a lot but it's generally embraced more by down-and-outers. 
Why do you think that is? I think it's because people who are humanly impressive have more trouble admitting their need for God, don't you? I mean, if you've got a lot of wealth and a lot of resources, you've got a lot of friends and connections, it's easier to mask your pain, isn't it? Medicate it away. It's easier to have diversions and pleasures and to get your mind off of the fact that your life is rather empty and that you're leading a life of quiet desperation. So is the gospel for up and outers? Oh, of course. Is it for down and outers? Yes. But it is for people who realize their need. You a hot shot? You impressive? You at the top of the heap, successful? God's not going to save you that way. God saves people who come broken and humble before him and who realize they got nothing to offer for their salvation. You say, well, pastor, okay, okay. What does this mean for us? Well, I'll tell you one thing it means, especially for those of you who are leaders at Grace, at Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, we better keep one thing front and center. We better keep on remembering that the gospel is for all people, amen? It's for the poor, the oppressed, the despised, the marginalized, the people that nobody else will give at the time of the day. It's also for those who are up and outers, who are flying high, who everything seems to be going good, but they realize that they're broken and bankrupt spiritually before God. Now, which category would you say you're in? <laughs> are you one of the up and outers? Pastor, I was born in the lap of luxury, brother. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I got the best of the education that money can buy. I'm a success. I have wit and wisdom. Well, bravo, bless your heart. <laughs> Do you understand that all of those things are a gift from Almighty God? Let me hit you with a brutal verse. I mean, this, this is a brutal awakening right here. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Put that in your pipe and smoke it, you up and outers. Put that in your pipe. You say, but pastor, that's not me. Oh, I, I get it. You say, I'm, I'm, one, I'm one of those broken people. I'm one of those down and outers. I, 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 mean, I can't even identify with people who would think God is really blessed to have me. I can't even identify with that. I've got a word for you. God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if your life is a mess today, here's my word to you. God can take your mess and make it a masterpiece. In fact, I got news for you. 
you may not know it just by looking at them, but all around you, if your life is a mess, all around you are people who are a broken mess. And God is in the process of making their life into a masterpiece. So whoever you are today, whoever you are, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. Oh, how we need this part of the Christmas message. God did it the way he did it, in part, in part, to show that his power is made perfect through weakness. Bless his holy name. But there's one other message I just want to lift up in the minutes we have left. I just want to highlight it. I think perhaps one of the reasons God did it the way he did it, in such a humble way, is that he wanted to inspire us to live lives of humility. Oh, I just finished up a great book yesterday. Uh, I got a lot out of it. It's, it's by an author, Kellen, uh, Karen Pryor is her name. And, and the book is, is called On Reading Well. And then the subtitle, I may botch this a little bit, but give me grace, uh, like uh, Finding the Good Life or Living the Good Life Through Great Books. It's a good read. And it talks all about the classic virtues and the classic vices that battle against them in our lives. Really, really good stuff. And Karen Pryor, the author, talks about this virtue of humility and how that pride is such a pervasive thing that all the other sins compared to pride are like flea bites compared to pride. Do you see that in yourself? I do in me. C.S. Lewis and most of the other theological minds down through the ages have basically said that all other sins are kind of rooted in pride. Perhaps that's why in Proverbs 11 it says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Sometime back, I was at uh, Albany Medical Center to visit someone there. Uh, they were on the fifth floor. And I remember getting on the elevator, and, and I hate crowded elevators. You know what I mean? I, I got stuck in a crowded elevator once. I mean, one where you just like, literally, you could not move. And we got stuck in there for several minutes, and it was freaky. I mean, people started screaming, and they were kind of suffocating. It, it was just horrible. I never want to do that again, all right? I don't like crowded, but I got on right at the end, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump on here, and I was near the door. I punched the fifth floor, and I was a little bit distracted, I suppose, and the elevator stopped at the fourth floor to let someone else on, but I just assumed it was the fifth floor, and I just jumped off the elevator and started walking, and I hadn't taken three steps until I realized this is not the fifth floor. This is the fourth floor, but you know what I did? I just kept right on walking like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Just kept right on walking. Isn't that silly? I was too proud to turn around and admit to a group of total strangers that I'd made a mistake. I'm not the only one in this room that struggles with pride. And during the Christmas season, our pride can really get engaged. 
I mean, which in-law, which set of in-laws is going to get the visit from the newlywed couple? Whose Christmas gift is going to be appreciated the most and talked about the most? Which single parent is going to get the child on Christmas morning? It become a matter of pride if we're not careful. Who gets invited to the most prestigious party? Whose house wins the award in the neighborhood for being the best decorated? All kinds of things that hook our pride at Christmas. And God says, James says about the Lord, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Think about that for a while. Think about that. God opposes the proud. Now, in another place in the Bible, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But I'll put it to you like this. If God is against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. If God is opposing you, you're toast. I mean, if there's anyone you don't want opposing you, it is almighty God, but God opposes the proud. Pride is a legitimate problem. So here's a part of the Christmas message. Let me say it again. God is not a distant deity. Humbly, he came alongside of us. He made himself weak and vulnerable, and he did it in part to model for us what it looks like to walk in humility. There's a passage in the Bible that was actually an early hymn that your brothers and sisters, get this, your brothers and sisters in Christ used to sing this. That alone makes it special, even if it weren't in the Bible, but it happens to be in the Bible, and it's in Philippians chapter 2. Let me just read this for you. Philippians 2 is sometimes called the great kenosis passage, a word that describes Jesus humbling himself and emptying himself of certain divine prerogatives. I start in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, there's sort of a a deferential, humble way of living being described here. But But he goes on. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, here it is again, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, Our example of humility is Jesus who who gave up a throne for a stable. That's that's downward mobility. I've always been trained. I've been taught to seek upward mobility. Kingdom is upside down sometimes. Jesus 
calls his followers to walk in his steps and live a life that's poured out for others in service and sacrifice. So as we wrap up today, I want to just get real practical and ask, what, what might that look like for you? Now, if you're a parent, you've got some good training in humility going on, don't you? Because changing diapers and wiping noses and cleaning up messes after that wonderful little child, that is humbling work. Amen, amen, parents, that's humbling. But what are some examples, other examples we might look at? Well, I would suggest that letting someone in front of you in Northway traffic. (laughs) Yeah, instead of speeding up so they can't edge in, just, just relax and say, Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to death, even on a cross. I can, I can humble myself and let them in. That's, That'll be my cross to bear. Now, I want to warn you, you might get to your destination 10 seconds later. I hope that doesn't bother you too much. Oh, I know that's going to be a cross to bear, but hopefully it won't wreck your life, okay? Or maybe you've been driving around the mall. You've been looking for 10 minutes, still haven't found an empty spot. And you're looking and looking and looking, you're driving up and down these roads and you're going and going and you see a car leave and another one immediately takes that place and ah, you're losing your mind. And now 20 minutes later, here's an empty party, but then you notice here's a person who saw it at exactly the same time you did. Humility might be to let her go ahead and take that space without exchanging those ancient cryptic hand signals (laughs) to express your feelings. That would be humbling. Letting someone have the biggest piece of cake, humbling. When you're the leading scorer on the team, giving credit to the people who passed you the ball, humbling. Giving up your preference for which movie to watch so that others can have their preference, That's an act of humility. It really is. Giving up a minimum of 10% of your income to honor God and support his kingdom work. Wow, that's really humbling. When you receive that plaque as the valedictorian of your class, instead of puffing out your chest and thinking, yeah, I am pretty amazing. You humbly give credit to your parents, your teachers, and your mentors who got you there. Or here's one. Although your schedule is crammed, sitting down and listening to a friend's pain when you've got a boatload of your own pain, that's, that's, that's humility. I like this little verse from 1 John 2. I I almost never hear anybody quote this one. I don't know why, but I like it. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Wow. Let's remember that this Christmas. How did Jesus walk? He came in humility. He lived in humility. He died in humility, and I'm so glad God's ways are not my ways. 
So let's learn this Christmas from his example and by his grace, let's walk in humility. Father, I thank you that you didn't do it the way I would have. You did it far, but far better. And the wisdom of your ways is astounding. Thank you for all the things we can learn as we appreciate your humility in the incarnation. Oh, how we need to walk in humility. We get so puffed up about our views and our perspectives and our accomplishments and our bank accounts and our house and our car and our children and our clothes and our wit. Help us to understand that any good thing in our life is a gift from you. And let us praise you all the more this season. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.